And so what I wanted at Burgundy was to have delegated responsibility and authority for portfolios so that there would be one empowered individual making the decision with nowhere to hide and who was willing to take that kind of responsibility on. And it is a heavy, heavy responsibility. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Becoming really, really good at something is incredibly difficult, but perhaps even harder is leading others to be exceptional at the same profession. Nowhere is this more the case, I think, than in the business of investment management. As the rise of index funds have shown, there are a few places tougher to win than as a portfolio manager trying to outperform the index year after year after year. To achieve that is, uh, is quite remarkable. But perhaps even more impressive is to build a team of portfolio managers and help them for decades outperform as well. That's exactly what my guest today, Richard Rooney, who's the chief investment officer of Burgundy Asset Management has done. I've known Richard for some time. I invest uh, with Burgundy and they've also been a client of ours. And what stood out to me is the culture that Richard and the other senior members of the firm have created intentionally uh, that has enabled that success, that sustained success. So I have Richard on to talk about how he's done it. And even if you're not running an asset management firm, if you are leading a team, if you are sitting at a leadership position in a volunteer organization, if you want to create a culture that enables you to sustain success, you'll want to listen today because Richard talks about both what he's done and what he deliberately has not done to empower his people. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bart. It's great to have you here. You've clearly built not just a firm that's your own investment vehicle, but one where you have a team of people who think as you do, who have a uh, really take as seriously the task of investing as you do. My idea was that I wanted to have a responsibility culture. And what I mean by that is that uh, very often in investment firms, they structure themselves so that the responsibility for decisions is rather unclear. There's a very good reason for that. When you're in the capital markets, you are marked relentlessly and in a way that you, you can't fudge against benchmarks and you, you can be marked daily, weekly, monthly, annually. On your performance, on your, your performance. investment performance. Exactly. So your decisions have immediate consequences, good or bad, and it's actually a, a very, very heavy responsibility to take. And 
you're probably aware, undoubtedly aware of all the work that's being done on behavioral economics. And the, the I human, just finished Thaler's book. The human psyche isn't very well uh, designed to deal with the capital markets. The capital or the capital markets are designed to mess up the human that's psyche, right. whichever way you want to look at it. So most places give people places to hide. Most mm-hmm. people set up committees and teams and co-managers and all this kind of thing. And um, as a result, and I'm speaking from experience, I've, I've been, I, I worked a couple of other places before I came to Burgundy, which had good investment philosophies and good people. But I felt one of the flaws that they had was that the clarity around decision-making wasn't there. And so what I wanted at Burgundy was to have delegated responsibility and authority for portfolios so that there would be one empowered individual making the decision with nowhere to hide and who was willing to take that kind of responsibility on. And it is a heavy, heavy responsibility in a business that, you know, is kind of endless, right? So right. that nobody ever kind of rings the bell and pins the blue ribbon on you. And, you it's a long war. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a marathon. Right. You know, every single year is a brand new game. So, right. uh, so when you just when you started Burgundy, maybe take me back to that point. Had had and you and Tony started Burgundy together. Had you had you reached clarity about this culture of responsibility, responsibility culture, and what that would look like at that point? Yes. Now, I wasn't actually present at the creation of Burgundy. Mm. Uh, there was a, a predecessor of mine. My my predecessor uh, had a somewhat different investment philosophy from uh, from what mm-hmm. Tony had. And, you know, Tony is essentially a disciple of Warren Buffett. You know, the quality value approach. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman that preceded me uh, had a more of a Ben Graham statistical value approach. And and so they decided amicably that that wasn't working too well. So my predecessor left and I was hired in early 95. So the firm was brand new. It was just a couple of years old and had uh, very few clients. Um, So it was essentially a startup. Um, And I went to Tony and I I told him, I think the best investment people like to be generalists. They don't like to specialize in individual uh, industries. Uh, they like to roam. I think the best way to organize is geographically. So Canadian equities, U.S. equities, European equities, Asian equities, that kind of thing. And I really don't believe that the chief investment officer should be in a position to be choosing stocks and underlying funds. I think the closer you are to the geography and to the market, you should be empowered to pick the stocks. Mm-hmm. So and this was very, your idea of delegate responsibility. Very delegate decentralized model. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. So, so, and, and that's, that's critical, actually. You mentioned the word authority. So you have to give up both. Mm-hmm. You can't, I, I always say that that responsibility without authority is uh, slavery and authority without responsibility is def- despotism. Hmm. And neither of those is what I wanted. What I wanted was empowered individuals excited about doing their job and, and engaging with mm-hmm. the capital markets and and learning about all these wonderful companies mm-hmm. and all these these different geographies. And did you share you share this philosophy with Tony? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what was his reaction? He was. It, you know, it, it's not a common structure. In fact, I don't really know of anybody else mm-hmm. that's taken it to the extent we have. But Tony was really quite excited by that. He thought it was. Um, he thought it was a really good way to go. Uh, we also talked about how it could uh, potentially solve some of our problems with succession mm-hmm. since the, the 
any analysts we hired would also, by definition, be generalists. And therefore, you know, one of the issues with dividing up an industry group is, you know, you've got somebody who's done really, really well in information technology stocks or something like that. And a slot opens up for uh, being a portfolio manager. And you have no idea whether the person might be able to manage a portfolio or whether they're simply Mm -hmm. good with IT stocks Mm -hmm. or whether IT stocks have just had a particularly good five years. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I came in, came on strong about what I thought would be the advantages of this. I explained to him what I'd seen uh, in the industry in terms of, as I said, not very well organized decision making, uh, excessive index orientation, benchmark orientation, those kinds of things. Uh, and fortunately, that kind of plays pretty well with the whole Buffett approach, right? Nobody's so, in too so much. It fit with Tony's. Yes. It, it totally fit with his with his philosophy, mm-hmm. and he could look at Berkshire Hathaway and say, "There's a mm-hmm. there's a perfect example. There's somebody mm-hmm. nobody's in any doubt about who's making the decisions at Berkshire Hathaway, and if they're bad decisions, we read about them in the annual report. He takes mm-hmm. complete responsibility for them. So we we also admired that aspect of Berkshire Hathaway, just that you know step up, and if you got it wrong, you tell people it's you got you. it wrong, right. and you think about why you don't." Mm-hmm beat your breast or flagellate yourself. You right. just say, okay, this this happens. What didn't I get, right? So, so you have this melding of the minds. I guess, obviously, he chose you to come aboard, become the new CIO. Yes. Then the work began. Did you then go about hiring portfolio managers uh, with this philosophy in mind? We were really starting from scratch. So, uh, so really, we had uh, a Canadian equity portfolio that I was managing. Tony, at that time, was managing our, our U.S. equity portfolio. And uh, so the, the two of us just kind of managed side by side until early 2000. Burgundy had grown to the point where Tony actually had some things to do as CEO, right? <laughs> and, uh, and and at that point, he he decided to to turn over uh, stock picking responsibilities. So, and in that time, so you had you you outline this clear responsibility culture mandate or doctrine, and he agreed. You agreed to try it. How did it work? I mean, were there when you actually started each managing a portfolio? Did were there moments where it proved? Uh, challenging or, or helped or, or perhaps um, reoriented the two of you? Well, we, we were both in, in very substantial agreement about how to invest, about what a quality value investment looks like. Um, the main challenges that were thrown at us were thrown at us, you know, by crazy markets. Like it was the, the tech bubble. Time. We went straight into the tech bubble. Exactly right. So, what a lot of people forget is that there were a few glorious years for hmm. quality value before that. So I came on board in early 95 and from early 95 right up until the summer of 98 was a fabulous hmm. time for it. That was really when Warren Buffett's reputation spread nationally. Hmm. Before that, a lot of people in the investment business knew about him, but hmm. it was during that period that he was making ridiculous amounts of money right. and, and the returns were insane. And, uh, a lot of people all around America started to appreciate uh, his approach. Responsibility culture was probably pretty comfortable. Then. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was, and and then of course we got the tech bubble, and that mm-hmm. was uh, that was a major major test for our, our mm-hmm. company. And you know, philosophically, we couldn't we couldn't participate, and mm-hmm. uh, so that 
made for two pretty uncomfortable years, sort of, you know, massively uh, underperforming, um, sometimes having negative returns when the stock market <laughs> averages were up 30, 40, 50 percent. Um, and it was the making of the firm because when that collapsed, it went south in a big hurry. We were making money all during the period 2000, mm-hmm. 2001, 2002, while the markets were going down. And it kind of established our reputation as a, right. as a firm that had a, had a philosophy, had a style. Right. And at that point, we really only had uh, uh, Canadian equities, U.S. equities, and uh, Asian equities. Mm-hmm. So we, we were still a little bit embryonic at that right. point. But you've now, by that point, you've been through you know, a rise, a fall, and the beginnings of a rebirth. The philosophy had proven itself. Right. And now, as you said, Tony had to had CEO responsibilities. And so you went out to hire. Yes. And, and, it, and you've alluded to the fact that this culture is not typical in the investment business. No, that's right. So did that shape who you look for and how you communicate to them in the hiring? Well, we had some good luck there, too, because we did have a couple of analysts in the 90s. Hmm. Um, we had a gentleman called Stephen Mitchell, who's since left the firm. Hmm. But uh, Stephen. Stephen was uh, uh, the analyst in uh, in U.S. equities for a number of years during the 90s. And we hired Craig Poe in uh, March of 1998 when we were just starting up the Asian fund. So in the aftermath of the tech bubble, uh, Stephen uh, started managing European equities. And Craig took over the Asian equity portfolio. I think it was early 2001. So at that point, I was really more of a player coach because right. I was managing money myself. I took over the U.S. portfolio from Tony in, in March of 2000. And so a bit of a different job, but, you know, it, it, it was good because it, we didn't establish any kind of a, a steep hierarchy right. where these guys were reporting to me. I always said, you know, we all know what we're trying to do and we all know mm-hmm. how we're trying to do it, basically. So, it, And I uh, imagine as part of that is that you were communicating this philosophy to them. Yes. And, and so talk to me about that. You know, what what would you actually, I mean, was it um, an ongoing process that you would kind of embed in their minds? Well, we, or did they what just we get would it? start with, you know, is, uh, you know, there, there's, there's lots of, of nonsense uh, produced on TV and mm-hmm. in the financial press. And you simply say, you know, somebody came in and said, you know, what about that Labor Department report? You just say, ignore the Labor Department right. report. If you have a company where you think there may be a labor issue, talk to management. Mm-hmm. Like we do everything bottom up here. Everything mm-hmm. we do, we look at the economy, yes, but we don't look at through look at it through mm-hmm. the eyes, eyes of an economist. We've never, I don't think, had an economist visit us in Burgundy. Wow. Um, we look at the economy through the eyes of the companies mm-hmm. we invest in. So if you have concerns about that, ask the company. Mm-hmm. They'll be willing to tell you what the, what the the drivers of their business are, and right. if they have to worry about wage inflation or any of these other right. things. So a lot of it is just to make sure that you have that sort of radical concentration mm-hmm. on individual investments, because that's what we do here. And for, try, try to shut out the noise, try and shut out all the macro stuff, all the things that can get in your way. Generally speaking, all it's going to do is confuse the issue and, and probably make you make the wrong decision. So, so culture, it sounds like the investment culture, there's, there's a kind of macro philosophy that you have around this responsibility culture. And then there's some guiding principles around you know, the deleg- how you built the organization, delegating responsibility and authority. But then there's also, I'm hearing, 
there's just like ongoing, you know, you have to kind of work against these external narratives. Correct. That exists. Absolutely. And you're correct. almost like you're battling for the the head and hearts and minds of the people here. Right. So in our business, it's ridiculous the amount of information hmm. that we that we have to process. It always has been. It even was back in the 80s when you know I'd come in and, and have my inbox. You know, I thought I was overwhelmed then. I mean, it, and your physical inbox that. back then, <laughs> not your exactly. e inbox, right? <laughs> exactly. So uh, it was it was more of a strain on the muscles than the mind. But the uh, <laughs> uh, but now, I mean, with the with the internet and with the really incredible amounts of uh, of computing power and information that's out there, You're sitting in the phone now that you have access to, absolutely. So the the critical things that are going to invest your, affect your investment decision, it's, it's so easy to get completely snowed under with detail. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do is make sure that we, we keep it clear, like that we understand the company's strategy, that we have an idea of what that strategy is going to involve as far as how the business is going to evolve over time. Mm-hmm. And, that's what we're marking against and just trying to keep everything else out. Right. And did you, when people would join, you know, it's one thing if you have someone like Craig who came up in the system, if you will, I'm sure he was. But he came from an MBA background hmm. and, and, you know, the, you his to be first report had all kinds of Greek letters and betas and all that right. kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and, you know, it also had some good insights hmm. about the business. So I was able to say, this is what we're going to keep and this is what we're going to keep. Right. <laughs> Has anyone ever come in and not, have not bought in or, um, or, or maybe conversely, has anyone joined the firm and changed how you think these principles should be? Well, I, I think one of the interesting things about what we do is, as you, as you know, Buffett has this whole idea of circle of competence, and, and that's what we're all about, right? We're, we're, we try to make sure that we know our investments really, really well. But I think one of the things that I would not have anticipated 20 years ago when I was, uh, when we were early days in this, in this business was the, the extent of disruption and the Mm -hmm. degree to which companies that were canonical value investments, quality value investments in 1995, like for example, daily newspaper stocks Mm -hmm. would have been considered absolutely cornerstone stocks in a portfolio in 1995. And they're not investable. Right. So, uh, the same is almost true of, well, Kodak's a great example. Uh, also, uh, broadcast radio mm-hmm. and TV, all these things. I mean, the internet has been massively disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so I would say what, if you were asking me in 1995, I would have sounded a great deal more certain <laughs> about what industries might still be big successes mm-hmm. in 2019. So we have had to be able to move the scope of our uh, of our circle of competence work much more uh, away from failing businesses and towards technology. So, so that's been a learning, I think, across the firm. And of course we had a bit of a, a, a false positive there in 99, 2000, right? I mean, it's actually comical when you think about it because there were all these people walking around with stars in their eyes about the future of technology yes. and all this stuff. <laughs> They were absolutely right. They were just, just 15 about 15 years, years early. Too early. And <laughs> right. therefore, they were a disaster. That's right. right. So, huh. so sometimes you, you have to sort of park your skepticism right. and, uh, and also 
you know, it's a good example of mm. you can't get married to any industry. Right. You just have to be. Buffett always says, you know, you've got the the, the moat in the castle, and it's mm. in capitalism, somebody's always trying to fill the mm. moat and storm your castle. Right. So you can't stick things away in the coffee can for twenty yeah, years. Defenses anymore. change, right? So the the principles of where you invest change, or what constitutes a sound investment. But I'm also hearing that this responsibility culture has endured. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Well, it, my people are are pretty ferociously competitive, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they really not not within the not within the business actually, fortunately, because they all have their own bailiwicks, mm-hmm. but against the benchmarks mm-hmm. and against other firms, uh, external managers. So. As a result, I think they get very good at, at smelling smoke and deciding when thesis uh, when a thesis isn't working, when a, when a company's mm-hmm. broken. We do fall into value traps, but uh, we've gotten better at that over the years. So, and, again, and they have the responsibility and authority that they can they can adjust. That's right, yeah. and uh, and that makes it a very tough mm-hmm. job. It's it's mm-hmm. actually you know a grinding, difficult, um, endless brutal job if you're doing it right. That's right. Uh, what have you done for me lately? As I, as I always say, when they open up my statements, <laughs> and I imagine it's hard to be, you know, it's hard to be swimming in opposition to how the market thinks day in, day out, just, very, to, just to be right. Very you know, hard, Mark. Yes. Once. This, is, this is an important factor is, uh, I was talking about this with, uh, with Craig Poe. We read all this behavioral finance stuff and mm-hmm. we think about the way human beings react to the market. And the fact is that a lot of instinctive things that people do are really bad for long-term returns. Right. But the fact that we are forcing ourselves, our rational minds, to think in opposition to that is actually a really wearing, really difficult thing to ask right. of people on an ongoing basis. So. So yeah, that's uh, that's actually a great point. It's yeah. one of the other reasons that we need each other around here. So right? you create kind of that to your point that counter narrative. Yes. That reinforces what you want to be doing. Yes. And normalizes things that everyone else is saying are not the right things to be doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things that we think will eventually be exposed as completely insane. Right. But people think is, you know, this is this is the way the world is you going. You have to be so, wrong for a while. Yeah, you do, unfortunately, and it's very hard on people. How much of your time do you spend, if you, if you did a pie, right, if you're time, how much of your time do you spend communicating culture and communicating these kind of guiding principles in the business? Not Probably not as much as, as you'd think. I try to lead by example. I've always mm-hmm. had my own my own funds and you know there's a few things that i'm willing to harass my managers about like you know cash positions and things like that i mean i i think we try and through things like as you mentioned the the view from burgundy the blog we write every now and again Mm -hmm. speeches i give i try and tell people what burgundy's all about but generally speaking it's it's kind of an unspoken culture but i think a very strong one you mentioned that at the heart of what you do is bottom-up research you meet with companies you learn their management teams i see on your shelves here books around about ceos and management teams so what do you observe in terms of creating culture that the best ceos and executive teams do and the worst because you've seen a lot of successful companies and unsuccessful companies well i think the best companies always have a good business at the core of them, right? Mm-hmm. And they understand that and they respect that and they, you know, 
the worst companies tend to take the cash flows from their best businesses and, you know, do random diversification or diversification as diversification. Peter Lynch Lynch used to call it. Good companies have have a discipline. Uh, They have a a soul and the soul is sort of their good business at the the core of things, right? And they respect that and they build that on an ongoing basis. And, you know, one of the things I worry about is, is whether companies, you know, with, with companies growing to the enormous sizes they are today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do they really have uh, a corporate culture, right? Company, do you think these, these CEOs, because of the huge pressure to grow at all costs, really have uh, put culture second to growth? Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's one of our big problems mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, the fact is, business is mature. Mm-hmm. Your volumes and your prices, you know, they're going to normalize. Mm-hmm. And at some point you're going to grow at GDP or something like right. that. Maybe even less if there's a big demographic mm-hmm. change coming in your business, like in the food business, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Heinz isn't the business that it was, you know, 20 years ago because people like different flavors. Now. Right. So the fact that we kind of encourage CEOs to deny that reality mm-hmm. and just reach for growth in any way possible or, Maybe even not so much growth, profitability. Well, at some point it becomes hard to grow, right? And then you cut. Yeah, and then yeah, and then mm-hmm. and then if if you then get in, get somebody in who's going to like eliminate the the company's workforce in an attempt to increase the margins. So I think we're going to see that with Tim Hortons, right? Well, yeah, I mean that that was already, I think, by most people's standards, a you know pretty well managed company, right. but uh, you know they somehow found three thousand people to lay <laughs> off, and and uh, now it. I don't know. It seems to me that cups aren't nearly as high quality right. as they used to be and things like that. And but I think that's something if, at Burgundy, you know, that you have as an advantage is that you're, you're privately held. So yes. you don't face that relentless pressure to grow yes. at all costs. Yeah. An investment firm should be a conversation between the managers and the clients and with nobody else at the table. Right. Yeah. We, Tony and I are adamant about that, um, you know, going public, you know, having public shareholders at the table because, you know, we close funds all the time, right? right? We get to the point where my manager will walk in and say, I'm pretty close to having some liquidity issues here Mm. with some of my smaller names. And so we close the fund. Right. And that's the privilege of being private. Absolutely. And it's, it's what you've got to do for your clients. And it's allowed you to maintain The whole thing is the next client in the door has to get the same product that the first client in the door got. And Mm -hmm. if that's no longer going to be the case, then you have to close it down and launch a new product Mm -hmm. where you tell that client the kind of product he's going to get. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, authenticity is what we're really, really, that's really important around here. Well, I think it's something that's stood the test of time for you. Yeah, I think, and I think for most corporate cultures, that, mm-hmm. are, that are that work. Authenticity, authenticity is, is what it's about. Buffett. That's you know, mm-hmm. that's what you see is what you mm-hmm. get. That kind of stuff. That's really important. So continue. You know, ensuring authenticity continues is important. You mentioned maybe this is kind of a good coda. You've mentioned your impending retirement. Yes. Is it so? As a as an investor, is it a full retirement? Are you going to ride off into the sunset, or is it a semi retirement? No, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a semi retirement. Yeah, whatever yeah. a three quarters retirement is, or, yeah, or so one quarter retire ish. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to be 65 next year, mm-hmm. and uh, there's nothing particularly magical about that. But uh, I I do think 
you know, my level of of knowledge of technology, for example, I just don't feel it in my bones the way mm-hmm. people do. And I think that's so important that we have somebody that, that really understands that. China's another thing. And, and Matt spent six months in China from October mm-hmm. until April. So she really, really has a better grasp of that uh, major theme and, and that big part of our future than I do. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's a good time to do it. I'm young enough that I think I can be a, a, a useful mentor mm-hmm. uh, to her. There's lots of things around the firm that I do because the firm grew up around mm-hmm. me. My CIO responsibilities are part of what I do and right. I can delegate those. There's lots of other stuff I do because it's fun and because I like to do right. it. You I can don't keep have doing to delegate it. those. So, uh, and, so and I, that, I think it'll be great. I'm actually really looking forward to it. That's a nice to. nice way to ease into the next phase. And, and so we've talked a lot today about responsibility culture, the intentionality with which you've crafted it. You've kind of cultivated people who share your commitment to it. So here's Anna Matt taking over as CIO, but fortunately still with your mentorship. What guidance would you give to her about how to communicate in a way that will sustain that? Well, that's a great question. And it, it's actually one of the reasons why uh, Anne Matt, I think, is, is the best choice of, of successor. One of, the, one of the, her really great strengths is as a communicator. Mm-hmm. It's not always a strength with investment people. Investment yes. people are, are analytics. <laughs> mm-hmm. They like an analyzing. They don't necessarily like talking to other people. Yes. So. And if you were to give her one piece of advice, I'm sure you've given her many pieces of advice, but if you were to say, look, the one thing you have to do to sustain this responsibility culture, what would you say to her? Well, you, you really can't intervene in portfolio decisions. That has to be sacrosanct. That has to be one person's job. Mm. And it's amazing. I had an analyst once that I was grooming to be a portfolio manager. And I was letting him make virtually all the decisions in the fund. And this one day, I forget what happened. He, he'd been kind of going back and forth on this name for a long time. And so he, he sent me an email. This is also a problem. Never communicate by email. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, you, know, you know that already. Yes. I don't need to tell you that. So, so anyway, I, I, don't, I got out the wrong side of the bed or something like that. I just sent back this thing. Oh, for God's sake, just sell the thing, right? Something <laughs> like that. So he sold it. And then, you know. The next time he came into my office, it was a totally different conversation. Hmm. And he was saying, you know, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, it was sort of he was presenting names, but wasn't giving me recommendations. And I said, you know, what gives? I mean, you've been making the decisions in the fund for the last six months, right, essentially. And he said, well, it's not my fund. You know, you, uh, you, know, you made the decisions, so. So that okay. one action changed one the entire action. tenor. Absolutely. And that's how fragile it is. Mm. And and that's that's not what I want, right? I want people who are going to take responsibility. And I guess if you're not given it, then you don't take it. So um, Right. And yeah. then once you give it and you're clear about it, stick to it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's very important. It's uh yeah, you've got to be very consistent about this. And sometimes, you know, you're just sitting there and you're thinking, mm-hmm. I really would not be doing that. Right. <laughs> and it's okay. Once, you know, mistakes are made, I always say, you know, we do all spend a lot of time. Uh, I stole this from a, an executive I met in the U.S. applauding thoughtful failures. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's good because there's all kinds of ways to be wrong. Right. And 
you have to make people analyze their mistakes. They have to be dispassionate mm -hmm. about it. It can't be a blaming conversation, mm -hmm. a prescriptive conversation. Mm -hmm. It's a descriptive conversation. And what went wrong mm -hmm. here? How can we avoid, you know, we're all going to make mistakes. That's practically what we do in the markets mm -hmm. day to day. How do we avoid making the same ones twice? Right. That's the key. And making sure that it's their mistakes and that yes, you're there to help Absolutely. Them. And you know what? It's an interesting thing about portfolio management. People don't learn from other people's mistakes. I think it's a broader comment in humanity, right? <laughs> you <laughs> learn when you've been whacked upside so, the head. And, I, and you know, you, you that, say, well, I'm never doing that again. You've got to let people do that. That's you've right. You've got to let people live live the, the mistakes. Congratulations on, on what you've achieved in building this firm. I've I've uh, admired it and, and benefited from it as well. So I uh, thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you, Bart. It's been yeah, fun. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Richard Rooney. What I always take away from talking with Richard, this is someone who's very thoughtful in defining what he'd like to create as a culture and committed to both communicating that and then living it. You know, I think that one of the most impressive things is his willingness to step back and let people have that ownership, not just the responsibility, but the authority, as he said, uh, to deliver on uh, and feel both the pain of the when they don't and the joy when they do. So very inspiring. Two weeks from now, my next guest is also from the capital markets, but uh, brings a different lens. It's Jennifer Reynolds. She currently is leading uh, TFI, Toronto Finance International, which is a public-private partnership uh, to advance uh, the competitiveness of the finance industry. Uh, but I talk about uh, something a little more niche and closer to home. Prior to her role at TFI, Jennifer headed up Women Capital Markets. And that was an organization that we at the Humphrey Group have partnered with over the years to support the advancement of women. And so we talk about why after you know decades of efforts by well-intentioned companies, we still aren't seeing the progress on things like gender gap, representation of women uh, in executive suites and boards, and also what Jennifer thinks needs to be done, what kind of leadership we can and should show uh, to move things forward. So uh, tune in in two weeks for that inspiring conversation.